1: All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Professor by Charlotte Bronte, chapter twenty one. Directly as I closed the door, I saw laid on the table two letters. My thought was that they were notes of invitation from the friends of some of my pupils. I had received such marks of attention occasionally, and with me, who had no friends, correspondence of more interest was out of the question. The postman's arrival had never yet been an event of interest to me since I came to Brussels. I laid my hand carelessly on the documents, and, coldly and slowly glancing at them, I prepared to break the seals. My eye was arrested, and my hand, too. I saw what excited me, as if I had found a vivid picture where I expected only to discover a blank page. On one cover was an English postmark, on the other a lady's clear, fine autograph. The last I opened first. Monsieur, I found out what you had done the very morning after your visit to me. You might be sure I should dust the china every day. And, as no one but you had been in my room for a week, and as fairy money is not current in Brussels, I could not doubt who left the twenty francs on the chimney-piece. I thought I heard you stir the vase when I was stooping to look for your glove under the table, and I wondered you should imagine it had got into such a little cup. Now, monsieur, the money is not mine, and I shall not keep it. I will not send it in this note, because it might be lost. Besides, it is heavy. But I will restore it to you the first time I see you, and you must make no difficulties about taking it, because... In the first place, I am sure, Monsieur, you can understand that one likes to pay one's debts, that it is satisfactory to owe no man anything, and, in the second place, I can now very well afford to be honest, as I am provided with a situation. This last circumstance is, indeed, the reason of my writing to you, for it is pleasant to communicate good news, and, in these days, I have only my master to whom I can tell anything. A week ago, Monsieur. I was sent for by a Mrs. Wharton, an English lady. Her eldest daughter was going to be married, and some rich relation having made her a present of a veil and dress in costly old lace, as precious, they said, almost as jewels, but a little damaged by time, I was commissioned to put them in repair. I had to do it at the house. They gave me, besides, some embroidery to complete, and nearly a week elapsed before I had finished everything. While I worked, Miss Wharton often came into the room and sat with me. And so did Mrs. Wharton. They made me talk English, asked how I had learned to speak it so well. Then they inquired what I knew besides, what books I had read. Soon they seemed to make a sort of wonder of me, considering me no doubt as a learned grisette. One afternoon Mrs. Wharton brought in a Parisian lady to test the accuracy of my knowledge of French. The result of it was that owing probably in a great degree to the mothers and daughters good-humour about the marriage which inclined them to do beneficent deeds and partly i think because they are naturally benevolent people they decided that the wish i had expressed to do something more than men lace was a very legitimate one and the same day they took me in their carriage to mrs dees who is the directress of the first english school at brussels it seems she happened to be in want of a french lady to give lessons in geography history grammar and composition in the french language mrs Wharton recommended me very warmly and as two of her younger daughters are pupils in the house her patronage availed to get me the place it was settled that i am to attend six hours daily for happily it was not required that i should live in the house i should have been sorry to leave my lodgings and for this mrs d will give me twelve hundred francs per annum You see, therefore, monsieur, that I am now rich, richer almost than I ever hoped to be. I feel thankful for it, especially as my sight was beginning to be injured by constant working at fine lace, and I was getting, too, very weary of sitting up late at nights and yet not being able to find time for reading or study. I began to fear that I should fall ill, and be unable to pay my way. This fear is now, in a great measure, removed. And, in truth, Monsieur, I am very grateful to God for the relief, and I feel it necessary, almost, to speak of my happiness to some one who is kind-hearted enough to derive joy from seeing others joyful. I could not, therefore, resist the temptation of writing to you. I argued with myself it is very pleasant for me to write, and it will not be exactly painful, though it may be tiresome to Monsieur to read. Do not be too angry with my circumlocution, and inelegancies of expression and believe me your attached pupil f e henry having read this letter i mused on its contents for a few moments whether with sentiments pleasurable or otherwise i will hereafter note and then took up the other it was directed in a hand to me unknown small and rather neat neither masculine nor exactly feminine the seal bore a coat of arms concerning which I could only decipher that it was not that of the Seacombe family. Consequently, the epistle could be from none of my almost forgotten, and certainly quite forgetting, patrician relations. From whom, then, was it? I removed the envelope. The note folded within ran as follows. I have no doubt in the world that you are doing well in that greasy Flanders. Living probably on the fat of the unctuous land, sitting like a black-haired, tawny-skinned, long-nosed Israelite by the flesh-pots of Egypt, or like a rascally son of Levi near the brass cauldrons of the sanctuary, and every now and then plunging in a consecrated hook and drawing out of the sea of broths the fattest of heave-shoulders and the fleshiest of wave breasts. I know this because you never write to anyone in England. Thankless dog that you are. I, by the sovereign efficacy of my recommendation, got you the place where you are now living in clover and yet not a word of gratitude or even acknowledgment have you ever offered in return but i am coming to see you and small conception can you with your addled aristocratic brains form of the sort of moral kicking i have ready packed in my carpet-bag destined to be presented to you immediately on my arrival meantime i know all about your affairs and i've just got information by brown's last letter that you are said to be on the point of forming an advantageous match with a Percy little Belgian schoolmistress, a mademoiselle Zenobi, or some such name. Won't I have a look at her when I come over? And this you may rely on. If she pleases my taste, or if I think it worth while in a pecuniary point of view, I'll pound on your prize and bear her away triumphant in spite of your teeth. Yet I don't like dumpies either, and Brown says she's little and stout, the better fitted for a wiry, starved looking chap like you Be on the lookout, for you know neither the day nor hour when you're blank I don't wish to blaspheme, so I'll leave a blank. Come it Yours truly Hunston York Hunston Humph, said I, and ere I laid the letter down, I again glanced at the small, neat handwriting not a bit like that of a mercantile man, nor, indeed, of any man except Hunsden himself. They talk of affinities between the autograph and the character. What affinity was there here? I recall the writer's peculiar face and certain traits, I suspected, rather than knew, to appertain to his nature, and I answered, a great deal. Hunsden then, was coming to Brussels, and coming I know not when coming charged with the expectation of finding me on the summit of prosperity, about to be married, to step into a warm nest, to lie comfortably down by the side of a snug, well-fed little mate. I wish him joy of the fidelity of the picture he has painted, thought I. What will he